Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we define cancel culture, break down some of its key components, and explain why we spend so much time talking about something that apparently doesn't exist. So welcome to fucking canceled. Welcome back, guys. It's been a while. It's been a little bit of a time. Um, so before we started the episode today, we just wanted to um, talk about something that recently happened. Um, a friend of ours named Jem. Our friend Jem. Um, Jem was like internet famous um, under the name You're Doing Great. So some of you might have been familiar with their work. They, they were like a TikTok star, I yeah. guess. Yeah, a TikToker. Yeah, and they were really popular. Um, and Jem went through one of the most brutal, public, awful cancel campaigns that we've ever seen. Yeah, it was super fucked up. It was really fucked up what happened to them. Um, and, like, really heartbreaking and awful. And basically, recently, Jem has um, done something really brave, which is they created an essay to talk about their own experience because basically they've been super silenced as many canceled people are and have not mm -hmm. been given the opportunity to like share their perspective or their side of things or, you know, just kind of like have a voice in all of this. Yeah. So we wanted to start the episode, um, just like mentioning that and encouraging people to check out Jem's essay. We'll put the, um, the link to it in the show notes. Yeah. And also just to say that we're really proud of Jem for having written that. And it's like, it's, it's an important essay for, like, its content, um, but it's also, like, an amazingly well-written essay and uh, has its own, like, literary merit. Yeah, absolutely. And we really recommend that people read it. And I think it really gets to the heart of a lot of the contradictions um, that, you know, pervade this cancel culture um, fucking world we live in. Yeah, and we're just fucking proud of them, and we just wanted to, like, shout out some solidarity and, um, yeah, say Jem's our friend and check out their essay. So we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Fuck yeah. So like I said, um, today we're going to be talking about cancel culture. Finally. Um, you know, the, the podcast is called fucking canceled and obviously we've talked about cancel culture a bunch, but we've never done an episode specifically about cancel culture yet. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to wade into, yeah, like how to define it. Um, you know, what we like actually mean when we talk about it, why we call it cancel culture. Um, and, uh, we're going to talk about some of the ways it functions. Um, yeah. Like some of the strategies that are used. Yeah. You can basically think of this as like a cancel culture one-on-one episode because, you know, obviously cancel culture has come up a bunch in the other episodes, but like we haven't yet done one that sort of breaks it down and like talks about specifically what we mean and what we're talking about when we talk about cancellation and we talk about cancel culture. Yeah. And, it was surprisingly hard to kind of like write this episode or like come up with the concepts and stuff like, or I guess I should say the concepts are stuff that we've been thinking about for literally like years at this point. So, um, that wasn't so complicated, but like the, the tone that we want to use has been tricky. Um, and sort of like choosing what to focus on has been, has been tricky as well because we really want like one of the goals for the podcast 
generally is that we want to be able to really speak to people who have engaged in this kind of behavior. And, and we are people who have been in that world, you know, um, and we don't want to alienate people and we don't want to dehumanize people for having participated in, in cancel culture themselves. Um, and that's tricky, right? Because people, we, we have another big segment of our audience who are people who have been ruthlessly canceled and for whom it is really triggering to, to hear us, you know, talk with compassion about the cancelers. Yeah. And, and people who have been more on the other side of things are also can, can be really upset at the idea that we should be giving compassion to people who um, have been canceled, you know? Um, and it's tricky because we do really want all of these different kinds of people to be able to tune in um, and really listen to us without, without sort of losing it, you know? Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's, it's really like an opportunity for us to practice our principles and to really like model those principles, which is that no one is disposable. Um, no one is defined through the worst things that they've ever done. You know, we can, um, oppose behaviors without opposing the human beings who carry out those behaviors. And like, these are a lot of our, you know, like abolitionist, um, politics that really like are the root of our opposition to cancel culture. And so, yeah, like we also have to extend that compassion to people who have um, taken part or who are currently taking part in cancel culture. And so it's tricky. Like it was actually hard for us to strike this balance because we know that for people who have been canceled, um, who are like severely traumatized by the shit that has happened to them, it can be really hard to hear um, us like extending that compassion, um, and being kind to the cancelers. And it's kind of like almost an exact model of like, why, like the same kind of thing happens within cancel culture where people are really triggered by us offering compassion to people who have been abusive in other ways. Right. Right. Um, like how dare we, you know, care about someone who has done something wrong, but we do care about people who have done things that we think are wrong. Right. Um, and so, we really wanted to just sort of be transparent that we're like grappling with these issues and that we're trying really hard to model that compassion all around. Um, so that, you know, wherever you are in all of this, that you know that you're welcome here. Um, and we're inviting everybody to like also try to listen with those principles in mind. Right. So like generosity, compassion, um, you know, and, and the different principles that we talked about in the first episode, like how can we approach these, these tricky topics, um, in a principled way? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think particularly, yeah, generosity and compassion are, are the really important ones here. Like generosity, thinking about, um, you know, trying to put ourselves in the shoes of others, um, and, and trying to really like, accept that like if we had taken a slightly different path in life we might be doing things that we currently disagree with you know um sort of like there but for the grace of uh, a power greater than myself go i right um and yeah and compassion just meaning like honestly like all of us are sick and suffering like people do all kinds of things like life is a really complicated wild ride um and we we can and must have compassion for people who do things that are hurtful because all people do things that are hurtful. Um, and all people are just trying to fucking get by the best they can, the best way they know how, you know? Um, and it's, it's hard enough as it is without us, um, abandoning compassion as a a root principle. Yeah. And like, you know, I think if we really want to transform this culture, if we really want to transform it, 
then we have to transform it in our actions and we can't reproduce the same dynamics, right? So like we can't create new scapegoats. We can't create new enemies. We can't create new, um, like turning new human beings into symbols for like what is wrong and then thinking that if we punish or exile those people, then things will be okay, right? Yeah. Like we know that this doesn't work. That's the whole reason why we oppose cancel culture. And so we also need to extend that same like refusal to dehumanize towards people who are acting in ways that we consider to be quite abusive um, and harmful. Yeah, and fundamentally, we want those people on our side. Yeah, and like we've said in other episodes, like we have our own experiences with taking part in council culture. Um, This is not like, you know, we don't care about like purity or, you know, whatever. Like we want people, everyone's in their own process, and like we hope that people can arrive at a place of like acting in a principled way. Yeah, exactly. And before we move into the main part of the episode, um, we want to mention that we're referring to cancel culture here in its context within the Nexus, what we call the Nexus, which if you haven't listened to our earlier episodes, um, is basically what we call this kind of triple combination of identitarianism, cancel culture, and social media that is like basically has like taken over much of the, the leftish part of the political spectrum in North America and abroad as well. Um, and... Basically, the characteristics of the nexus that are important here is that cancel culture um, within the nexus is happening mostly online and mostly happens through a frame of identitarianism or sort of like extreme identity politics, if you can put it that way. Um, and yeah, you know, it's worth mentioning that the a lot of the mechanisms through which cancel culture works are like widespread in, in, in human time and space, right? Um, it's basically a process of shunning, um, shunning and, and group punishment, right? Which have existed like all over the world um, in all different time periods, and we can easily think of examples of cancel culture that um, you know happen. For example, on the right, um, you could think of like the Dixie Chicks or something like that, um, and you could think of um, uh, cancellation campaigns that happen um, outside of the sort of like internet world. Um, So you could think of, like, shunning that happens in religious communities, for example. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and so, like, basically, cancel culture is, like, a bigger topic than um, the Nexus. But this is a podcast that is about... The left. The left and is about the Nexus. So we're going to be talking about cancel culture within that context. Mm -hmm. And, like, obviously, some of the stuff we talk about might carry over to other contexts, but we just wanted to make it clear that that is our focus. Okay, so um, now we'll get into what is cancellation um, and how we define it. And, like, you'll see that, like, online there's, like, lots of different um, sort of definitions of these words and people are um, talking about things in different ways. But we just wanted to, like, make it clear what we mean and the way that we're using this language. So I found um, a definition that I had written actually in... um, a post on Instagram that I thought was like just really concise and clear to explain the way that we talk about cancellation. So I think I'll just read that here. Um, I wrote cancellation is the process of being subjected to a campaign of harassment, which extends to your friends and supporters. It is an abusive practice that aims to entirely isolate someone and rob them of their material resources until they bend to the will of the mob. Um, And so I think that this definition is really important um, because it describes like what 
cancellation actually is and what we're referring to. We're referring to these particular tactics um, and behaviors um, and like the way that they operate. And I think that's important because a lot of people obviously are constantly going on about how cancel culture doesn't exist, um, but they very rarely engage with the specifics of what we are saying cancel culture is, right? Right. Um, And so, yeah, we want to break that down and talk about what the specifics are. So we're just going to talk about some of the tactics or components um, that make up cancellation. So... Basically, like I would say that cancellation is like when someone has been marked um, as a target for like a series of call outs that are happening, you know, in a repeated and ongoing way um, and on the Internet. And many people are now taking part and like reposting um, and and like involving themselves in various capacities. Um, And so when this is happening, there's like a few things going on. Um, One is misrepresentation. So sometimes the things that the person um, is being accused of are literally not even true um, or they are like very overstated. Um, And even in cases where the accusations are true, I still consider it to be misrepresentation because of the fact that it completely focuses on these um, this particular element and erases the rest of that person's humanity. So, like, even a person who has done something um, fucked up or whatever, you know, by completely focusing on that um, and making their entire identity about that, it's you're like misrepresenting them because people are actually complex. They have full lives. They have done many different things in their lives. Some which are good. Some which are not so good. Um, and so to reduce a person to that is a form of misrepresentation. Yeah, absolutely. And it feeds into this um, tactic of dehumanization that also occurs where, yeah, like someone's full humanity is stripped away from them. Um, it's, you know, in a, in a, a, a cancellation or like a, a campaign of these like call outs, um, these really elaborate sort of um, testimonials that you'll see and stuff like that. You're never going to find people being like, oh, and also this person is like a kind uh, parent and, you know, uh, a devoted member of their community and, you know, has always been known to like, um, whatever, like go down to the riverbank and pick up trash or, or whatever. Right. People don't people don't include that in their in their call out. They find a bunch of like really um hurtful and damaging things to say about someone and entirely focus on those, right? Um, Which, you know, basically is just being fucking cruel to someone. Um, But it it is similar to how other sort of, like, systems of punishment will systematically dehumanize the people that they victimize, right? And it's like, you can think about how, you know, when people are arrested um, and the story goes in the newspaper... Um, it's always going to be some like kind of fucked up mugshot of someone like looking real sketchy or whatever. And activists often will take like a photo of that person um, from, you know, when, when they're just like hanging out with their kids or something and yeah. sort of like try to publicize that photo instead to rehumanize someone. Exactly. Right? And it's for exactly the same reasons. Yeah. And like when we dehumanize someone, we justify the cruelty that we enact against them. So it goes hand in hand, right? Like, and the more that we, you know, strip away the complexity of somebody's humanity, the easier that it becomes to violate their boundaries. Um, 
and to justify to ourselves that it's okay to treat them this way. Um, Another piece is humiliation. Um, And basically, like, humiliation is the experience of being degraded. Um, And cancel culture is intense because you're being humiliated and degraded on such a huge and large um, scale. Um, So you have no control over it. You have no control over your representation. Um, and people are going to say horrible shit about you. So like, you know, it's, it's crazy to me sometimes watching cancel campaigns go down because I mean, I can give an example from, from my own cancellation, like the sort of normal standards of just like human decency and kindness, like totally go out the window. Right. So it's like, although, you know, you might supposedly be canceling this person for like, you know, justified reasons of like, you know, this person has been accused of doing something bad because they've been dehumanized in this way and marked, you also can get away with just saying random cruel shit about them. Um, so like I found out that like, um, some of my cancelers were like mocking me for my psoriasis, for example, um, and like making fun of the way that I look, um, which is like pretty weird in a social justice context, um, because supposedly we oppose that kind of cruelty. Um, but in cancel campaigns, you'll often see that people are just like, humiliated in various ways. Um, and so I think that like the three things like misrepresentation, dehumanization and humiliation, they all kind of like operate together, um, and are similar to each other in various ways. Um, and like one thing that I wanted to also mention about these before we move on to the next component is that like, okay, like how can I explain this? Basically like when I was talking to my therapist about it, um, and she was, she was trying to understand um, the experience of what it's like to be canceled and like to be harassed at this level. Like she sort of drew a comparison to like um, an oppressed group of people being like mocked for being who they are, right? Um, So like queer people experiencing homophobia, for example. Um, And like, that's also awful for sure. Um, But like, there's something specific about cancel culture, which that doesn't sum up. Which is that often you're not not all cancellations are the same, but in cancellations where you're being misrepresented or falsely accused, you're often being accused of things that you yourself abhor, like things that that are like out of alignment with your own values and principles. Um, and so it's awful to be called that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a huge misrepresentation that feels like a, a major violation, and there's no way to sort of like correct that misinterpretation of you and like what you stand for and what you believe. Totally, and I mean another thing that I think you actually mentioned to me is that you know when you're canceled, um, it can feel similar to sort of experiencing like let's say homophobia in the world, um, in the sense that you you know probably most people are going to be like chill about it, but you never know who's going to be like really fucked up about it to you, you know, for like no reason, but they're fucked up about it specifically to you. Like not even to like a group that you represent. It's you that they don't fucking like, you know what I mean? Like you specifically, which is like, yeah, I don't know, just particularly hard to deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. So misrepresentation, dehumanization and humiliation, like function to, um, turn a human being into like a symbol that can be Mm -hmm. um, ruthlessly uh, treated, you know, and, and it makes it easier to then enact the kinds of abusive practices 
that are involved in cancellation. Yeah, and there's two more things I want to say about that because they're just popping into my mind. Um, one is that, yeah, like you said, symbol. And like what happens with this dehumanization is that people become stand-ins for systems, right? So like, for example, somebody who is accused of sexual assault will become a symbol for every single person's abuser. Um, and like, it's actually encouraged, like in these cancel campaigns, in some cases, very literally, like very literally encouraged that all survivors should take all of the pent up rage that they have about their individual specific perpetrator and, you know, project it on this person, you know? And like, that's, that's crazy. Like that person is, and sometimes these people are falsely accused too, to begin with. Um, but whether they are or they're not, that person is only responsible for their own actions. Like they cannot be made responsible for an entire system. And part of what cancel culture does is it strips this person of their specificity and their humanity and turns them into a symbol for a larger system so that we can vent all of our rage and our, you know, intense feelings that we have about these larger systems and we can take it out on this like particular human being. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to say, um, about this is that what's crazy to me, like it's actually, I think one of the really traumatic aspects of cancel culture is that people who are being canceled are being victimized. Like they're experiencing abuse and sometimes they're experiencing really profound abuse. Like there are people who have expressed, and I relate to this, that like cancellation is one of the worst things that has ever happened to them, you know? And like, I'm a survivor of like some pretty serious fucking shit in my life. And cancellation is one of the worst things that has ever happened to me. It's one of the most traumatic things that has ever happened to me. And I've heard other people express this, right? So when you're going through one of the worst traumas in your life, but also collectively, you're not seen as a victim. You're actually being framed as an abuser or as someone who is causing harm when you yourself are helpless to stop the onslaught of abuse that is happening against you. So it's like even more of a mindfuck because I think, you know, in the nexus, um, victimization is kind of like held up and seen as like positive in a certain way. Like if you can claim victimization, like people might listen to you, they might hold space for you, etc. But this kind of victimization, they won't. Like, they will not acknowledge or validate this kind of victimization, which I think adds to the trauma of it. Like, it's a huge mindfuck. Totally, totally. Um, and, yeah, just since we were talking about ideas that keep popping up, um, I just want to add on to the thing that you just mentioned just a second ago, which is that, like, one of the things that cancellation does and one of the reasons why I consider it to be profoundly kind of, like, anti-leftist is that it... Um, takes these these systems that leftists understand like these systems of oppression that leftists understand to be societal yeah. and like extremely broad right and then projects them onto individuals yeah. it's like this very neoliberal impulse where yeah. everything has to be responsabilized down to the level of the individual and individuals are made responsible for systems that we theoretically understand to be fucking well, there's systems, so there's systemic, you know? Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, and then we can feel like we're doing political work by like destroying some person's life. Like a random individual. Okay, so we sort of broken down those concepts. Um, the next thing we want to talk about is harassment. So, like, what even is harassment, you know? Um, and, like, usually in, in the context of cancel culture, harassment looks like the following things. It looks like, um, like, incessant, nonstop comments, emails, DMs, tags that are basically degrading you, slandering you, talking shit about you, happening over and over and over again, right? So, like, 
when I was being canceled, like I literally had to like give my, like change my Instagram password and like not look at it, you know, because the influx is so intense and you're receiving like these nonstop messages from like strangers and people that you don't know. And also like every person that you've ever known, um, just like totally, um, talking about you in this way that is really, really awful and not representative of like the way that you see yourself. Um, yeah. So it's, it's this repetitive misrepresentation, dehumanization, and humiliation happening over and over again in a way that you can't really escape. Yeah. And I would add that like, you know, cancellations can take place on different scales, right? So, um, in the case of someone who has a much bigger public profile, it can really be, yeah, like totally incessant. And for other people, it can be more of like a steady drip, let's say, but it's like just as, um, it's like, you know, it's different. It's different, right? Like I was going to say, it's just as fucked up in some ways. It's more fucked up because those messages tend to be from people who like actually are in your life in some way when it's like a more like small scale cancellation. But then like when it's more of a large scale cancellation, like the sheer numbers are like so fucking crazy that it's like totally overwhelming, yeah. you know? So it, it can be experienced differently in different ways. Or Yeah. And I mean, or, either way you can't, you can't stop it and you can't, there's no way to stop it, there's no way to stop which it. is what makes it harassment, right? Like if I were to be like, Hey, um, you know, these messages are making me really uncomfortable. Can someone just not do this anymore? Like they're not going to stop. Right. Um, and so, yeah. And also, you know, it's not just people messaging you. It's people talking about you often tagging you in it. Um, but people, you know, making posts and sharing them all around with, um, you know, Uh, negative statements about you. Um, And so this can also like end up on Google. It can like be associated with your name. It can be something that like, you know, people that you meet in your day-to-day life have seen. Right. And that's like extremely stressful because it's like, you don't know if like any person that you meet already has like read these horrible things about you. Um, And obviously that leads to like paranoia and like, you know, an, an extreme sense of overwhelm because you don't know like how far it's gone or like who's seen it. Yeah. And this type of harassment can also include um, activities that are characteristic of like cyber stalking. Yeah. So that could include like doxing. It could include, um, you know, finding, yeah, finding information about your place of work or like um, the activities you engage in or, you know, places that you might frequent and then um, sending harassing messages to those people. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, really similar to ways in which like sort of abusive partners might, um, you know, um, phone like places where they think you might work to like, you know, tell like a false story about you or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's even been cases like I've heard more than one, um, cancel campaign that, you know, literally goes into situations of like people's homes being, um, vandalized people having posters made about them and put up around the city people having like their name and like accusations about them spray painted around the city in extreme cases people have had to have cops escort their kids to school yeah so harassment um and then another important component of this is that the harassment extends to your friends your supporters and anyone who continues to remain in your life. And this is like a key fundamental part of what cancellation is and how it works. Yeah. I think it really, um, it's a distinguishing characteristic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that the cancel culture denialists pretend isn't the case, right? Because like one of the things that they will always say is that it's not cancel culture if people just choose to like unfollow you or if people just choose to stop supporting you. That's just people choosing to do that. But people are not just choosing to do that of their own accord. Like, that's 
the difference, right? If people were just choosing to do that of their own accord. That's totally normal. I mean, it would suck still if a bunch of people that you care about stopped, you know, wanting to be your friend or whatever. Um, but they're not being coerced into doing it, right? And that is a very key difference. Right. People are, th- people are within council culture, people are threatened and coerced into ceasing to support you, ceasing to associate with you publicly, ceasing to be your friend. Um, and it's really scary because they see what happens to people who are canceled and they don't want that to happen to them, right? Yeah. And that is, like, honestly, fuck, man. Like, when it's happening to you and, and you know, friends of yours are, like, abandoning you and stuff or, or acquaintances are abandoning you, it's one of the most, like, heartbreaking things, right? Also, if, you know, if you're really generous about it, it's understandable because it's fucking scary to be canceled, man. And, you know, people making that, doing that calculus in their head and being like, well, I can lose one friend or I can lose all my friends. Yeah. Um, is, is fucking horrifying, but people do that. Right. And, and like, I don't think that it's right, but I don't really blame people for doing it. Like I, I mean, that's a complicated statement and I'm feeling like really emotional about it, but it makes sense that that happens um, or that people do that, that people end up doing that. And, yeah. and I think that it's it's honestly one of the most like, yeah, just devastating things about cancel culture is that it forces people to make that calculus, which is like, honestly, for some more sensitive souls might be traumatizing in and of itself, like to have to make a decision like that. And for people who are sort of the targets of that cancellation, it's fucked up for like a bunch of reasons. One of which is that, yeah, you're being sort of like steadily abandoned by a bunch of people who you thought you trusted. Mm-hmm. Um and two, that you then start to understand understand yourself as fucking contagious and yeah. like dangerous for people to be around. And this was something that was really difficult for me, where I was just sort of like, you know, if I if I get people close to me, they can be hurt. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Not by me, <laughs> but by cancelers who will make it their business to like hurt those people. To punish people who are associated. Yeah. And like it's it's pretty intense. And like, you know, I just want to be, you know, concrete about this because I think that the way that the denialism functions is that people really pretend like this doesn't happen. Right. They just act like it doesn't happen. They gloss it over completely. And so, but like the reality is, is like this takes a few different forms, right? There literally are posts that people make where they will like screen cap and be like, these are the people who I am who I am like following or I mutuals with who are following this person who is canceled and they will like screen cap their names and post it and be like, why are you, um, why are you following this person? Right. So like these public like hit lists basically. Yeah. And so then people are kind of encouraged to harass those people until they give up their support of the targeted person. Um, it will also take the form of like people will make like weird threats where they're like, you know, I see that I have 15 followers in common with this person. Like when I come back in an hour, it better be zero or like I will unfriend these people, you Mm. know? Um, and then on a more interpersonal level or like a more like local level, it can look like people like your friend can start getting like called in by, by other friends of theirs being like, I see that you are, you know, problematically still associating with this person who we've all decided is fucking marked. So, like, I'm here to um, correct you and teach you about why you have to stop being friends with your friends. Um, And if you don't do that, then this call-in will escalate to a call-out and uh, you will also be seen as marked and problematic. 
Yeah, and often it can take the form of, like, coercing someone to hold their friend accountable. Like, that's often the language that they'll use. So they'll be like, if you're remaining friends with this person, it's, like, your responsibility to, quote, hold them accountable, right? And basically what this means is that your your friend is being enlisted by the mob to... Threaten you. To threaten you and coerce you into doing what the mob has said that you need to do, right? Um, and, yeah. I think that this kind of logic is so taken for granted in cancel culture that a lot of people are kind of like, well, what's wrong with that? This person should do what they're being asked to do. Um, and we're going to unpack that in a little bit. Um, but like, actually, I think we should be fundamentally questioning that. Why is it that this person must do the things that are being demanded of them, especially when they're being demanded of them in such a coercive um, and abusive way? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, you know many ways that the harassment um, of friends and supporters takes place, but it's like a very real thing. And like, I receive messages from people like semi-regularly who are like, I love your work. It profoundly means so much to me. I read it all the time. I really like value you. However, I can't publicly follow you um, because I do not have the capacity in my own life to deal with the pushback that I'm going to get from my community for being associated with you in any kind of way. Um, And that's, you know, awful. Um, and then, yeah, like Jay mentioned it a little bit, but I think it's worth driving home that like, you know, if this is happening to all of your friends and community, right? So you're being misrepresented, dehumanized and humiliated at a mass scale, you know, obviously as Jay said, the scales can vary, but like on a public level that is like big, you know, um, you're being harassed, you know, you're getting messages that you can't stop that are talking shit about you. And as all of this is going on, which is incredibly stressful, you're also losing your friends, you know, you're losing the the very supports that you would need to kind of cope with such an overwhelming situation, right? So you're being backed into a corner in like a really, really big way. Yeah. Um, And so this is where it gets into like exile um, and, and shunning and loss of community. So people who are canceled tend to lose a lot of friends. They tend to lose a lot of supporters. Um, and they kind of become marked as contagious and stigmatized and pushed out of community. And one thing that I wanted to mention about this is that cancellations often often happen in waves. Um, in fact, I think they almost always happen in waves. Um, and there's this crazy thing that happens where, you know, you'll have like one wave of the cancellation, you'll lose some friends. And you'll be like, okay, at least I still have my friends that I didn't lose. Right. And then another wave will happen. Yeah. And it's the same accusations, right? Or Just, maybe they added some new ones. Right. Well, it's it's usually the same accusations, but like rephrased or like, yeah, like a couple things have been added, but it's basically the same thing because you, you know, haven't fucking done anything. Um, and then you lose some more friends. And then you're like, fuck, like this will just keep happening. And I don't know which one, like which ones of my friends are going to disappear next time. And it yeah. is profoundly fucking crazy making, man. Like it's one of the things that has been like the most difficult for my brain to handle. It's so disruptive to any sort of like trust mm-hmm. that you have going on. Um, because it's like, at least in my case, it's like sort of people that I, whatever. Yeah. People that I trusted who just sort of like ghost yeah, and don't talk to you about it. And like, you don't know why, Especially when, like, there are no new accusations um, and it's just the same kind of thing being, like, reheated, like, microwaved and, like, served back to the community again. And and basically people just get – I think that what happens is they just get kind of, like, tired of being associated with you because it's just, like, fucking 
um, difficult. Like, people give them fucking shit about it yeah. all the time. And they're like, this would literally just be so much easier if I stopped yeah. being associated with this person, you know? Um, and, yeah, so that that sort of, like, um, stage-based kind of, like, element to this loss of community is, like, um, has its own kind of horrifying um, character. Yeah, absolutely. It's extremely traumatic because, like, you know, you're – you're like trying to hold on to trust, um, and then again and again, you're you're having that trust violated. Um, so yeah, the next thing we wanted to talk about is boundary violations. So basically, yeah, like once a person has been marked in this way and targeted in this way, they're basically not allowed to have boundaries. Um, the idea of saying no to something, of being like, no, I'm not comfortable with that is like an accusation unto itself. Like you're refusing to be accountable, right? Um, It's basically seen that the accusers can basically demand whatever they want. They can demand that you like step down from your job or like a project that you do, that you can, that you aren't allowed to go to events in your community, that you, um, you shouldn't have any presence online. Like basically anything that you do, it can be demanded that you don't do. Um, And if you say no to that, that's just you refusing accountability. Um, and also like, you're not allowed to like, you know, even express that like it is painful and traumatic to be harassed in this consistent and ongoing way. Like, because that is seen as like centering yourself or whatever, like, yeah. And normal standards of decency, like don't apply anymore in terms of how people like whatever address you. Um, and also normal standards of, uh, let's say, like, the burden of proof don't apply anymore. Um, As soon as you're marked, like, there is no expectation that people have to prove anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, And the expectation is that you are, yeah, just considered guilty. Yeah. Um, And defending yourself from from false allegations is... Is further proof of your guilt. Further proof of your guilt, exactly. Which is a crazy boundary violation, right? Because, like, we have, as a, let's say, like, as, like, a civilization, we've struggled for literally, like, a thousand years to have um, processes of justice that, like, are just in some way. And obviously, we have a long way to go, right? Like, a long way to go. But, like, at least, and lots of people have pointed this out. I'm definitely not the first, right? And I think we've even said this on the show. But, like at least in the criminal justice system, you are considered innocent until you're proven guilty. And you have not only the right, but the expectation of defending yourself, which yeah. is not, not the case at all with cancellation. It's interesting because like, I've received messages more than once where people are like, how can you know a person respond to allegations against them without being defensive? And it's crazy because like the word defensive is like this really bad word. Like being defensive is really bad. But I'm like, the idea of defending yourself. It's totally good and normal. It's normal normal to defend yourself. If people are lying about you, you should defend yourself. Even if people are not lying about you, but they're harassing you and violating your boundaries, you should defend yourself. Like, it is normal and healthy to defend yourself against mistreatment, period. You know? And And, the the idea that it's not is, like, a really abusive and crazy idea. For sure. And ideologies that are, like, popular right now that sort of... um, problematize the idea of fucking personal boundaries um, in the name of sort of social justice ideals are profoundly dangerous for people, especially people who are already sort of like mentally ill or like fragile in some kind of way um, um, in terms of their, you know, their personality or their ability to sort of hold their own. Like when they're being fed 
these 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 lines, like it becomes really easy to abuse those people. Yeah, absolutely. Like as someone with complex PTSD who was like fully fucking taught that like I'm not allowed to have boundaries. Like you know, it took years of therapy for me to like get to a place where I was like, okay, it is actually normal and okay for me to like protest mistreatment. Um, and then to be in a culture that 100% tells me that I'm not allowed to do that and that that is like wrong and bad. Um, it's very disturbing. Yeah. Um, okay. And so the next thing is threats to material security. So, you know, a lot of the people who pretend that cancel culture isn't real or isn't a big deal, um, will always be like, you know, losing Instagram followers is like not a big deal. Like, why are you guys so upset if that's what's happening? And it's annoying because it's like, that's literally not what we're talking about. And we have like ourselves and other people have pointed out many, many times that that is not what we're talking about and that we're describing all of the stuff that we have just listed, that mm-hmm. that is what cancellation is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a lot more than just like losing followers. Um, but yeah, one component that's like really serious is that it literally creates threats to people's material security. It creates threats to people being able to meet their basic human needs. And so this can take a few forms. One is that, um, you know, people can literally be fired from their jobs. So in some cancellation campaigns, people are literally encouraged to like call the boss or like the employer of like the person who is being canceled and like they might lose their job over it. Mm -hmm. Um, Artists and people who like make a living that way, you know, they lose book deals and they lose, you know, whatever, like their label drops them. Um, Right. They, if they're self-employed, it's like literally in that case, their, their followers and all of that kind of stuff is literally directly tied to their ability to make ends meet. So making it like um, problematic to like support this person is literally directly impacting this person's ability to, um, you know, pay their rent and shit. And then also because these things become so public and they're posted all over the internet, you know, we live in a time of Google. So like, you know, if, if you're trying to get a job, if you've like lost your job and now you're trying to get a new job, you have to deal with the fact that like when your new employer or your potential employer types in your name in Google, the first thing that they're going to see is like these horrible, um, allegations against you. So that's like very awful. Um, and yeah, for, for queers and people who are like broke and who have the experience of like living with roommates for, you know, kind of indefinitely, which many of us do, this kind of stuff can also affect people's ability to keep their housing. Because if you, if you're being canceled on a massive scale and everybody's deciding that they can't associate with you, that might also extend to your roommates, um, and so, yeah, there are situations in which people literally have to move out of where they're living because of this harassment. So, yeah, and we've seen that a bunch. And and like, I want to say, yeah, I'm a socialist. I'm not sorry about it. And I think that it should be fucking like virtually impossible <laughs> to fire somebody um, unless like what they've done is like directly impacting the the like physical safety of people that they work with. Yeah. Um. You know, if they're like fucking drunk operating a machine or something. Maybe that's like a reason, you know, but like in most cases it should be so fucking hard to fire people. And you know, we were, we were talking about this earlier, me and Clementine, how like so much of the discourse around like fucking everything is being generated in the United States and in huge parts of the United States, you can be fired for fucking anything. Yeah. Like your, your boss can just fire you, which like to me is like a crazy idea. Cause it's like quite, quite a bit harder to fire people in Canada, although it's still much easier than it should be. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah, like I want a world where people have fucking secure employment, where their bosses can't just fire them because they got a phone call from some fucking stranger. You know yeah. what I mean? Alleging that they said something on the internet or whatever the fuck it might be, you know? And even people who have committed like serious felonies should be allowed to like keep their fucking jobs and their housing. There should be no circumstances in which people are, are like uh, summarily evicted from their housing, right? And like, if evictions do take place, people should have like a period of notice and 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 all these normal protections, right? And the fact that on the sort of like liberal leftish side of things, we have just sort of collectively decided that it's totally normal to try to deprive people of their livelihood and their housing yeah. is really disturbing to me. And in the context of the United States, their health care. Um, right. Because, right. because in the U.S. it's fucking tied to their work. Yeah. This which is crazy. Which is crazy to us. But Fuck, yes. Man. So it's like taking away someone's health care is like could uh. be potentially like a really fucking serious thing to do to someone. Um, and I'm like, wow, is that really does that really uh, is that really appropriate? Um, and, I, and I also want to point out that, um, again, there's this like crazy contradiction for me um, where, you know, so much of this cancel culture stuff is happening um, and is being carried out by people who also somehow claim to be abolitionists. And I'm like, one of the big sort of, you know, important projects of abolition under capitalism that we are currently living under is, you know, the problem of people who have records and who are ex-prisoners being able to get work, right? Um, and, like, it's fucking can be really hard when you have a record to get employment, you know? And this is, like, part of the ways in which the, uh, you know, the carceral state, like, continues to fuck up people's lives even once they've, they've got out, you know? Because that stigma is carried on and it basically makes it impossible for them to, like, continue on with their life and fucking get a job and, and meet their basic needs, right? And, like, that's something that I think abolitionists, I mean, oppose. We're supposed to oppose that because, I mean, it's wrong. It's literally the whole point. It's wrong. Um, but, yeah, cancel culture, it, it functions in a similar way where once a person is marked in this way, it follows them around and it can be really hard for them to, like, escape it and potentially to, um, you know, go forward and um, do the basic things that they need to do to just survive and have a life. And to add on to that, we've seen cases like multiple where people are um, sort of coerced through the processes of cancel culture to um, publicly admit to actions which in the criminal justice system are considered serious crimes, right? Yeah. Which can put them in severe legal jeopardy, right? Um, it's very, very fucking dangerous. And this is being carried out by people who, again, like call themselves abolitionists. And I'm like, you're a joke. Yeah, getting someone to admit to a criminal offense on camera um, and calling yourself an abolitionist, it makes no sense because that can literally be used against people in a trial, you know? Um, that could result in literal imprisonment. So... Definitely something to keep in mind. Um, yeah, and I mean, we've talked, we've already kind of covered this, but the next thing we just wanted to mention is the way that there's like a stigma associated um, with um, cancellation that just, you know, doesn't go away and that follows people around. Um, it also means that people are, like Jay was saying earlier, you know, there's these waves and like sometimes it's like there's no new allegations. It's just the wave is just coming again. Right. But also something that can happen is there can be new allegations because once a person is marked, it's like already there's not a huge burden of proof to like 
make allegations against someone, but once mm. someone is marked, there's there's none. Yeah. Like you can basically say once someone has already been canceled, you can just literally make things up about this person. Like there's people who like literally don't know me, live in a different country from me, have never had a personal interaction with me in any kind of way, who like jump onto the cancel campaign and just like say a whole bunch of stuff about me that is like untrue and also like how would they even like be, be making these statements like they don't even live in the same continent as me you know um but it doesn't matter at that point because once that person has been marked it's like you know the, the badness is them right like the badness is not even the accusations anymore the badness is the person and that is the process of dehumanization and so once that's happened you can just say anything you want and it will stick you know and so that's where you see like this broken telephone stuff and these like mutations of accusations and the ways that the accusations snowball and just like become more detailed um and sometimes like really wacky um and people can just sort of like get away with that because nobody's questioning it anymore like everyone is happy to just like add another accusation onto the snowball for sure and you might ask yourself you know why would anyone do that like what would anyone gain from making up a false accusation like reasonable people wouldn't do that but one of the things about cancellations is that they're carried out by mobs mm-hmm. not by reasonable people Reasonable people make up the individual members of a mob, but acting as a mob, the actions are not reasonable. And, like, people have literally, like, studied how, like, riots work and stuff to point out that, like, mobs have, like, a certain, like, weird, like, behavior of their own that can't be um, sort of, like, boiled down to its constituent parts. Um, And often, you know, in riots, like, as romantic as they might be, it's, like, people, like, burn down each other's houses and stuff. It's, like, not, it's not, it's not always this, like, cool political thing to have a riot, right? Because it's just a mob. It's a group of people no one's charged, you know? It gets out of control. Um, And in the case of, like, a cancellation, yeah, it's really, it's this situation where it's, like, you know, dozens to hundreds of thousands of people participating, and there is rarely any kind of sort of, like, organizing um, committee or anything like that. And, like, often people sort of, like, might imagine that there is. I think that it's actually a big part of how cancellation works in people's heads, where they imagine that someone must be in charge somewhere, um, sort of, like, making sure that the allegations are true and sort of making sure that things don't get out of hand or whatever, but there isn't. Like, almost never is there anything like that. Um, And instead, there's just, you know, a huge group of people... um, and, and all of those people have all of the different sort of like failings of human beings. So a random person might sort of be like um, aware of a cancellation, having a weird bad day um, and sort of like whatever wants to project some kind of thing um, in there and just does so. Right. And there's no one to stop them. There's yeah. no way they, they could be stopped. Um, so a, another little allegation is like thrown onto the pile and it doesn't matter that it's not true. Yeah. Like no one is checking. Yeah. And there's no way to check. Um, and... Yeah, I think the mob element is really, really fucking important to think about, right? Because part of what this means is that no one can actually be fully held responsible because no one is entirely responsible. It is being carried out by such a large group, right? Um, And so it was actually, I think, ContraPoints, Natalie Wynn, in her video on cancellation, where she, she said, like, that like the the snowflake doesn't have to feel responsible for the avalanche, right? And I think this is really important to think about because I mean, you know, for a for a a culture that constantly goes on about how uh, impact matters and intention doesn't, they're really obsessed with saying that. Um, it's kind of like interesting how we don't think about that in terms of 
cancellation. And we don't think about the context of our actions, right? So if all one, if you're just one person and you're just like, and you know, I'm not, again, like we're not judging, like I have also taken part in cancellations more than once, right? But it's like, you know, if I just, if I'm just like, all right, you know what? I saw this post going around about this person and I know that me sharing it is going to like look good for me. It's going to like get people off my back. Maybe I even feel like it's like the right thing to do, even though I don't really have much information or any way to like verify these claims. You know, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to post it and I'm just going to unfollow this person. Those are very small actions. Like I didn't fire this person from their job. I didn't take away all of these, this person's friends. I didn't take away their housing. You know, I'm not sending them hate mail. Like, so I don't have to feel responsible for those things. Right. But the thing about cancellation is that it is a collective action. Like it is happening collectively. And so my, my part in it might be small, but actually I'm contributing to something much, much, much larger. Right. And there's cancellations take part in a culture of cancellations, a cancel culture. Right. And so if you happen to be the person who sort of, you know, puts out the beginning of a cancellation into the world, you can be fairly sure that there's like a good chance that that might turn into an entire campaign of cancellation that you can't control. Yeah. And I think it's really important that we, we really acknowledge this, right? Because, you know, now that there is this critique about cancel culture happening and more and more people are starting to be like, huh, maybe this is like kind of wrong and we shouldn't be doing this. You'll see that like a lot of um, cancellations or like the original call out, they'll kind of like preemptively try to protect themselves from that critique by saying this is not a cancellation. And like we are asking that people don't harass this person. We're asking that people, you know, just sort of share this um, slander, which is harassment in and of itself. But they'll kind of say like, don't don't go to this person's house and beat them up. Yeah. Or like whatever. Don't try to get this person fired from their job or something. Right. Just email their job. (laughs) I mean, usually they will say that. But like, you know what I mean? Right. And like, but the problem is, is that you don't have control over it once you put it out there. And we have enough evidence to know that it's going to get out of control. It is going to get out of control and it is going to fuck up this person's life in a really intense and profound way. Um, and Or that at least there's a high likelihood for that of happening. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that it's going to happen, you know? Um, and yeah, before we move on to the next section, like, I just kind of want to say, like, you know, you might... You know, I, depending on who you are, like if you are canceled and you're listening to this, you're, you're probably just like nodding along and being like, yeah, absolutely. If you are one of our listeners who has not been canceled, who's sort of like anti-cancel culture curious and is um, sort of like on the fence about this stuff, you might think that some of the stuff we're saying sounds really extreme. Maybe you haven't heard about all of this stuff and you're kind of like, you just sort of witnessed pieces of cancellation on the internet, but you haven't actually talked to someone who's been canceled. So you don't know the full extent of it. You might be wondering like why we're speaking about this with such confidence and authority. Right. And the reason is, is well, both of us are canceled, right? Like we both experienced cancel campaigns and because we have this podcast and because we are like vocal, we're like, you know, vocal, um, public figures figures who talk about these things. We receive emails literally constantly. Right. And these emails are from people literally like in different countries all over the place, you know, ranging from people who are kind of like micro celebrities to just people who are literally normal people, um, ranging from like, you know, tattoo artists, bakers, um, Irish cosplay. People. Yeah. Like there's just like a whole range. Right. And, and they're just normal people. And they tell us in detail, they describe because they, 
Because canceled people are not allowed to talk about what is happening to them, right? They're isolated. They're isolated. They've lost most of their community. And if they were to publicly say, like, this is what it's like for me, it's going to increase the harassment against them. It's not going to create compassion because they've already been dehumanized, right? And so any attempt for them to rehumanize themselves is very likely going to be met with further harassment and abuse. And so it's a horrible situation for people to be in, and they desperately want someone to witness them who's going to witness with compassion. And so Jay and I are people who are going to witness with compassion. And so people fucking send us these um, emails that are like descriptive and long, and they tell us in detail what has happened to them. And it's incredibly disturbing. And, you know, there's this, there's this um, kind of idea that like people who oppose cancel culture or people who have been canceled, you know, just don't want to take any responsibility for anything that they've done. And they're just mad about consequences. And I can say from reading these emails that that's absolutely not the case. The majority of the people who sent us these emails are actually incredibly self-reflective. They look at their own behavior. They deeply look for whatever it is that they might've done that might have contributed to this happening to them. In some cases they were abusive or they did do something fucked up. And they usually are like really, um, they feel so at a loss because they want to correct things. They want to take responsibility, but they're so overwhelmed by what is happening to them that they feel like they can't, right? They don't know what to do. They don't know how to stop the harassment. Um, yeah. And in other cases, they're like, I wish that there was something that I could just take responsibility for, but there isn't, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I just say this because it's like, I think that like we do have this inside window into the lives of canceled people that most people don't have. And that is why we are able to like describe this with such detail. And I think, you know, again, for a, a culture that constantly um, talks about centering lived experience, it's interesting to me that people who have not been canceled and who do not know people who have been canceled feel like they are the authority to describe what cancellation is. It is quite interesting. Because they don't know. Yeah. You know, they've actually never spoken to someone in a detailed and ongoing way who has had these experiences. So. Yeah. And I almost I almost want to take like a deep breath here and just sort of like um, reground in these principles of compassion and generosity that we were talking about earlier, because I, speaking for myself, can get really worked up about this. And I'm angry, you know, like I'm angry about, about the things that have happened to me and people that I care about. Um, and it's hard for me to sort of like remember that um a lot of these people are snowflakes like so to speak who like didn't really like mean to like destroy my life you know um people who are like resharing things or whatever like just sort of like participating in this passive way you know they're dudes they're just doing something that lots and lots of people do man and that they might not understand the consequences of or they have never had an opportunity to even think through the consequences yeah. of it because it is so fucking punished to do that publicly right yeah and they may not even know the consequences of it because they may never have heard anyone describe in detail like what we're describing right so they may literally not be aware that that their action could have contributed to something as severe as what we're describing right. i also think that even for people who are like very actively taking part Again, like it's a larger culture. It is not like we cannot turn the cancelers into symbols for cancel culture, right? They are people who are taking part in something that is like normalized and that they're encouraged to take part in, that they are in some cases coerced to take part in and that they are taught is like the righteous and just thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. And they aren't given like alternatives or like other ideas about how to address, you know, various things beyond this, right? right. So we can't like... There is a difference between wanting people to take responsibility for their behavior and think through the impacts of their behavior 
and like condemning and dehumanizing someone for taking part in something, you know? So we're trying to, we're trying to strike that balance. So that was a bit of a tangent, but now we're going to move on to, so that was, that was basically us talking about the different like tactics and kind of strategies and, and so on that are used within um, cancel culture. And now we want to move on to really talk through some different types of cancellation because they're not all the same, right? Yeah. And so there's, we have a couple of basically like binaries that we want to want to talk about. And the first one is um, this split between ideological and interpersonal bases for cancellation. So basically there's some cancellations that have like a much more, yeah, like ideological basis. Like it's um, someone who has basically transgressed some kind of ideological norm, um, a nexus norm, um, who is being uh, punished for that um, and being coerced into sort of like um, moving back to a more orthodox nexus uh, ideological position, right? And then there is other kinds of cancellations that are much more based on interpersonal conflict. Um, and so those tend to be the ones where people are accused of being like abusers or like gaslighters or um, who have, uh, you know, made people feel unsafe or stuff like that. Right. Um, and so how those tend to play out, like there's a difference between how they, how they play out, um, what they tend to look like and so on. Although as we're going to explore in a little bit, there's also a kind of like um, merging that can happen between them as well. Yeah. So for the ideological ones, I mean... There's a couple different um, there's a couple different variations of how this can play out. So, you know, obviously people who um, are making sort of like more right wing um, statements or who are saying things that are bigoted or who are making jokes that are like offensive or or so on and so forth um, can experience cancellation, right? Um, and then also other leftists who. have um, a commitment to, you know, liberation for all people who have, like, a political commitment towards, you know, um, opposing dehumanization of all people, um, you know, socialists and and people who who are overtly leftists also get canceled because they don't, because they they don't have a nexus um, framework, right? So they might be um, positioning their politics in slightly different terms, Um, and so with this, it's like, I mean, I've said this many times, but I think it's really important to drive in, drive home is that like, basically, you know, there'll be this sort of like this idea that you'll hear people say a lot, which is like, what do you do if someone just refuses to like agree with you? Like, what do you do if you like try to educate someone nicely and they continue to disagree? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, what I would suggest is you go outside. You let them disagree with you. Yeah. Like you let them disagree with you, right? And I kind of believe this across the board, even for like the right wing shit, um, because I don't believe in censorship. I don't think that it is an effective um, strategy. I think it's better for like ideas to be out in the open so that they can be debated. Um, I think it's better to try to transform the way that people think rather than just you know punishing them for saying what they think. Um, And so generally speaking, I I oppose censorship in all cases, except for cases that are very extreme and in which people are literally organizing and advocating for the violation of other people's boundaries. So organized white supremacists, people who are literally putting forward a campaign in which they're like, we want to, you know, exterminate a group or like 
yeah, like repatriate the immigrants or um, literally build fascism in this country. Yeah, like yeah. that kind of thing is basically the only place where I'm like, okay, I can see why a strategy of like deplatforming or um, censorship would be, you know, acceptable because it's a form of intervention. It's a form of like actively trying to s- intervene on violence. Otherwise, if people are just kind of being conservatives or they're saying like some right-wing shit that I don't agree with, I would rather just be able to debate them. And I would rather just be able to, you know, try to talk to them and be like, hey, like how can we try to get closer to being on the same page, right? And I think that as leftists, like we have a responsibility to do that. Yeah. I also think like just just super quick that there's a difference between having an opinion that if carried out might lead to violence towards a group versus actively organizing for that violence to take place. I think that those are different things. Um, And I think that in the latter case, it makes sense to deplatform. Right. And that is what I think that, like, groups like Antifa should be concerned with. Yeah. In the former case, people have all kinds of fucking dumb opinions, man. Yeah. And we should be trying to, you know, and I mean, that doesn't mean that you personally have to have this conversation with this person, right? But it means that the left needs to be taking up the responsibility of, like, debating those ideas, of, like, trying to make the left appealing to as many people as possible. Offering better positions. Offering better positions. Like, that's our responsibility. Yeah. So that's, like, the one side of things. But... Also, it's very important to point out that a lot of ideological cancellations are happening to other leftists, right? They are not right-wing, and they're often called right-wing, which is absurd, Um, but these are, like, socialists um, and, like, overt leftists who have a different idea about how we should move towards the end goals of, like, liberation for all, right? And so, basically, like, what I always say about this is I'm just like, you know, the questions facing the left are, like, huge and profound and complex, and... It's an incredibly arrogant position to be like, I have it all figured out. I have all the answers and like I am in a place of like authority where I can just like scold other leftists and tell them that they have to be quiet because they're not saying it exactly the way that I think it, you know? And I'm just like, some of our best political minds who are like producing, you know, incredibly important theory and putting forth strategy are literally being like deplatformed and silenced because like they aren't being good Nexons. Um, yeah. So that's basically, um, like, my thoughts on, like, ideological cancellations. Um, they're usually, yeah, they're, they're cancellations that have to do with people who are not performing Nexus politics in the correct Nexus way. And For sure. And people will just, like, you know, tell people that they have to perform these politics in this way, and then if they don't, it can lead to a cancellation. Yeah, and, I mean, you just reminded me of something, which is that, yeah— I think in the past, it t- you you had to really like say something um, that was like yeah whatever like offensive or or just like not nexus orthodoxy in order to like really really get like good and canceled you know yeah but over the past year we've seen that you can get fucking brutally canceled for not saying something yeah so it's moved from like from you actually having to be like actively sort of like at odds with the nexus to you just being passively like not not performing like literally just like by like not doing something you can get um you can get fucking heat so and it's interesting because the assumptions of cancel culture have not caught up to that change right so if a person is being canceled um you know for not i mean like a a common one that i've seen more than once is that someone did not post either enough or at all about a particular political thing that was going on at a particular time, right? And so because they didn't, they're they're then being canceled as whatever, racist, homophobic, whatever, because they didn't perform the right amount of posts about that topic. Right, which 
like straight up is how like religious inquisitions work. Yeah. But so basically, but what happens is the information is deleted, right? So they aren't being canceled where people are saying so-and-so did not post enough about this. They're being canceled by saying so-and-so is a transphobe. Right. And so because of that, what happens is that people fill in the blanks and they assume of course. that they must have said something fucked up, right? Or that they must have said something offensive because otherwise why are they being canceled? But yeah, I've heard multiple instances of people who literally didn't say anything. Um, they just didn't make enough posts about something um, or like enough according to, um, you know, the, the nexus. And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that cover is ideological. Um, and so for interpersonal, um, this cover is more like allegations because with the ideological ones, it could just be strangers on the internet. Like it could just be a Twitter person with interpersonal ones. The accusers and the accused tend to know each other. Um, they have more of a real life relationship. Um, and this can range from like interpersonal conflict to allegations of abuse, sexual violence, things like this. Um, and yeah, so like in these cases, it's like situations where either people are accusing someone of having done something like really harmful and abusive or someone has done something really harmful and abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's different from the ideological ones because we're, do- we're talking about literally different behaviors. Um, and here it's like, I mean, people often actually use the sort of justification for all cancellations based on this idea of the interpersonal one and like the idea of like abuse, right? So how do we actually deal with abuse? And I mean, we did a whole episode on this, so like we're not going to get into it too much in this episode, but Mm -hmm. um, our episode um, called Refusing Accountability. um, Number six, I believe. Yeah, is like one where we totally unpack like what we should do in cases of like interpersonal conflict and also like situations of abuse. So there's lots of things that we can do instead of cancel culture, and um, we advocate that we do those things instead of canceling people. Right. Um, but yeah, like interpersonal cancellations are allegations having to do with usually abuse. Yeah, and also there's this element where. Um, Interpersonal cancellations tend to have this element of the accountability spectacle built in, um, which is just something where, uh, yeah, like things are framed way more in terms of like being accountable to like a community, um, usually with like specific demands um, that the the accused has to whatever, like stop like going to certain spaces or doing certain things or saying certain things or whatever. Um, although, yeah, there's, there's a kind of like crossover that happens where... Um, yeah, that can also be applied to more ideological cancellations as well these days. Yeah. And I mean, again, right, like this idea of community, like it's like the community is not like the literal planet, right? But like because of the internet, you know, the idea that like a community should like come together and figure out how to like navigate um, allegations of abuse, that would be like the people who literally know the accused and the accuser, right? Right. But because it's happening on the internet, someone on a different continent can feel like they're a part of that community and can feel like they have like a role in like involving themselves in that. Right. Like, you know, yeah, you share certain like micro identities with someone and therefore you're part of the community. Yeah. But it's like, that's, you're so far removed from the actual situation that how can you possibly be helpful to that? 
Um, yeah, so I feel like that's a basic breakdown. I feel like for the interpersonal one, like definitely um, listen to um, the Refusing to Be Accountable episode if you haven't, because we just go into like a lot more detail about that in that episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so the next sort of breakdown that we wanted to um, put forward is that there's also these two categories of the falsely accused um, or overstated harm and situations of actual abuse and violation. So basically, um, all of this gets lumped together, right? So like when we're talking about, you know, accusations, actually there's not a lot of space to talk about the falsely accused. Yeah, and often people like truly behave as though that doesn't exist. Um, and I mean, that's part of the whole thing where like, y- y- if you're canceled, you're actually not allowed to say that that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, it's not like, it's not built into the framework yeah. at all. And again, there's this contradiction between, um, abolitionist values, which really use the language of accuser and accused and like understand that like false alle- allegations do happen, that that's like definitely a thing that happens. Um, or that like, you know, harm can be overstated, And then this other narrative of, like, believe survivors, which is just that, like, whatever a person makes an accusation, that makes them a survivor, and we don't have a right to, like, in any kind of way question what they're saying, right? And those are actually incompatible belief systems. But weirdly, they, right now, are, like, both kind of being carried out simultaneously, and the contradictions between them are not being explored in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely, like, as we said, like, we hear from canceled people all the time, and, like, false allegations... Are common. Unfortunately, yeah. They're very common. Um, And part of the reason that they're so common is that we have, we live in a culture of overstated harm. Like we're actually encouraged to look at things through the lens of like violence and abuse rather than conflict. Um, And we're encouraged to think about things that way, right? And so I feel like we could do an entire episode on that and we probably will in the future because there's a lot to unpack there. Totally. Um, But it's important that people understand, at least on a basic level, that there is this distinction between cancellations that are happening to people who are falsely accused and cancellations that are happening to people who literally have been abusive in some way, right? Mm. And, like, I personally know people of both categories, and I'm friends with them, and I talk to them, and I have relationships with them. And it's just that, like, what needs to happen in both of those cases instead of cancel culture is just different, yeah, you know? Yeah, they have different experiences and different needs. Yeah, and so, like, a person... Because, you know, a lot of the sort of ideas about cancellation is that the person just needs to be accountable. They just need to take responsibility. Well, that doesn't apply to people who are falsely accused. People who are falsely accused do not need to take responsibility for something that they did not do. That would be dishonest. And and it would help no one. It would help no one. It's absolutely, it's actually abusive to try to coerce someone and force someone to take responsibility for something that they did not do, right? Right, because you're basically just forcing them to perform humiliation for your own gratification. And it's dishonest. Like, they're literally lying, you know? And so, yeah, and that is a thing that happens. And so, like, the idea that, like, we're just like, okay, well, how can we, like, you know, get people to be accountable? It's like, in some cases, people shouldn't be accountable because they don't have something to be accountable for. Um, In other cases there is something um, that the person has done. And those are like different situations. And again, we get into it in a lot more detail in um, the Refusing Accountability episode. But basically in those situations, those people need to be supported to take responsibility. And that is a process that happens, you know, mainly in private, um, that is not a spectacle on the internet, and that involves, you know, surrounding that person with support rather than taking away their entire community. 
and giving them the time that they need to actually go through the hard work that like actual responsibility requires. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are completely different, <laughs> right? Um, but for both of these binaries between ideological and interpersonal and between sort of falsely accused versus like, a, I guess like an accurate accusation, um, there's, there's this drift that can take place. Right. And so with an ideological cancellation, um, often you will find eventually as things go on, people will start throwing in more interpersonal, um, accusations along with it, you know? So it's like, if someone is, sort of like whatever, like a known um, this, that, or the other, like a transphobe and like a whatever, like a white supremacist or something because of some shit that they wrote on Twitter or Instagram. Or some post that they didn't make. Or a post that they didn't make when they were supposed to make. Um, people will then be like, oh yeah, like I I used to know that person and like they were like sketchy. Yeah. You know, I used to know that person and I remember that they... Um, they were always like uh, hanging out with a lot of like young girls or something like that, whatever. Um, yeah. And they'll just sort of like add in these things that make it more interpersonal. And then the opposite also takes place. Yeah. I mean, also along with that, it might not even be specific added. It can be specific added allegations, but there can also be this, um, this deletion of the details and the, and these words that get used that, that come with their own assumptions, right? So an example is, you know, a person gets canceled because they didn't make a post about a political issue, right? Um, That can be framed as harm, right? Right, right. So people can use the language of this person is a known harmer. Like this is language that people actually use now. So they will say this person has caused harm and has has refused to be accountable for harm that they caused. And the harm that people are referring to is like a failure to make a particular post that these people feel that this person should have made. Um, But when someone hears the phrase harm, they might assume that that is an interpersonal kind of harm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And then there's also these sort of like new definitions of like abuse that are proliferating. um, One of which, if I remember correctly, is just that if if you've been accused of harm more than once, that is a pattern of abuse. And now you're an abuser. And now you're an abuser. Whereas like the word abuse means something very specific and it is not something that has anything to do with you making a Twitter post, like like posting your opinion on Twitter or something. Right. That's absurd. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's like a drift that can happen as well. Um, and then between, oh yeah. And then, sorry. Yeah. And uh, like if, if your, if your cancellation is more interpersonal, people will often just start throwing in ideological things as well. Like the same thing. Exactly. So like if a person is, you know, accused of like sexual assault or something, they might also be like, also this person is like a known transphobe or something because the more that you can add on, the more it will stick. Right. Exactly. Um, and yeah, between false allegations and like accurate allegations, like you can start out with, let's say, um, you know, somebody is like mad about something that like really did occur. Let's say, um, let's say you were, you know, unthoughtful with them in like an argument or something like that, you know, um, and you said something that you regret. That's like a real allegation, whether or not it's the like a, a, a proportionate sort of thing to then have like an international campaign of cancellation against them is like another question, but it might be like an accurate like description of something that actually happened. Um, but then all sorts of false allegations can then get added onto it for basically the same reasons as we've just been talking about, you know, it makes it stick. It makes it more, it makes it seem less 
sort of crazy to be doing what you're doing. Um, and so that one allegation can turn into like, oh, um, this person has like a pattern of doing this, this person, um, whatever, like, you know, it happened in the context of like a relationship. So then it's like, it's similar to like domestic violence and like whatever. Yeah. And people don't, this is part of why people don't feel like they're taking part in false allegations because it's the way that we use language, right? So for example, um, one that I've heard of is like a person who cheated on their partner in a monogamous context, right? Mm -hmm then, you know, if you were to make a cancel campaign and be like, this person is being canceled for cheating on their partner, like that's one thing. And you could say that, right. And like, you could cancel them for that, but they don't cancel them for that. Instead, they, they say a consent violation. Right? right. Right. And so like, sure. Like cheating is, I guess you could use that language. Like you guys had an agreement, that agreement was broken. But when you use the phrase consent violation, people assume that you mean rape. Right. And so by, by sort of using this vague language and taking out the details of what you actually mean, it allows for people to to drift into a false allegation because yeah. you never actually accuse that person of rape. But because of the, the very vague language that is being used, you know, we're allowing people to make that assumption and not correcting it, right? Um, and so that is where, you know, something that was originally like a real accusation can now drift into being a false allegation. Yeah. And then very briefly, like the more kind of identitarian in tone you can make the allegations, the more likely they are to stick within the nexus because the nexus is really wedded to identitarianism um, and gives preference to content that is identitarian in nature. So, you know, um, basically, like, if you had, like, a conflict between two people and basically the issue is that one of them was being a dick, it, like, won't really stick. But if you can, like, throw in some identity markers for the people involved and make it sort of like a power struggle about um, privilege or something like that, then that is something that could stick. Yeah, and an important thing, like, we don't want to spend too much time on this in this episode, but an important thing to know about the way that identitarianism works in the Nexus is that identitarian, like, arguments only work when they are upholding the ideology itself. Yes. And so basically what that means is that you would think that somebody who holds, you know, multiple marginalized um, positions might have some kind of buffer against cancellation. And this is a mistake that a lot of people make. And it's not true. They don't. And some of the most disturbing cancellations that I've ever seen in my life happen towards people who literally are, you know, holding many um, positions of like marginalization and oppression, right? And it's it's interesting. Like the way that we talk about their identities is like we will on purpose try to play up um, things that sound like an oppressor identity while totally erasing um, the very real like marginalized positions that this person holds. So like an example that comes to mind is like, you know, like, uh, like a queer trans kid of color, um, you know, who's fucking broke, you know, is not having a lot of power, right? But if they are masculine of center, all of the accusations will like focus on the fact that this person is mask, right? And that will be seen as like a position of power, like an identity position that is an oppressor identity. And so the focus will be on that, but there won't be any discussion of like the fact that this person is also like severely marginalized in all of these other ways. For sure. Or if they happen to be sort of like, maybe their like mother is white or something like that, that, you know, um, th this uh, notion of like proximity to whiteness will be played up very heavily in a way that would be considered extremely taboo if it was like in any other context. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's basically like, you know, identity can be used to bolster the accuser, but actually identity does not do very much to 
protect the accused. Yeah. And again, yeah, like we don't want to spend too much time on this. I do have like one quick thing I want to say because I really do think that people make this mistake a lot. I've heard um, white people basically say that like, um, you know, this is like only happening because like I'm white. Like some people have been like mm-hmm. really like pushed to this position where they're sort of like all fucked up and they're like, this is only happening because I'm white. Like this wouldn't be happening if, if I was like a person of color or something. And then there's also these people who are more, who are like invested in cancel culture saying, if you're complaining about cancel culture, it's just because like you're straight or you're white or you're cis or whatever. Right. Um, and like, you just want to be able to be like a bigot or something like that. Um, and both of these these groups are totally mistaken because cancel culture um, can be directed against anyone. Identities will not protect you. Um, and if you fucking step out of line, um, out of out of like nexus orthodoxy, like you will be canceled. Like it's just a fact, you know. Um, and people will use identity against you because that's how it fucking works in the nexus, right? Yeah. And what's brutal, you know, is that. I mean, I actually think Kai Chang Tom said something about this, um, where basically, like, I think that basically, like, white people or, you know, whatever, cis people or something, straight people who can be afraid to openly critique this stuff because we're like, oh no, like, I don't have identities to protect me. Like, people are gonna come for me really hard. So there's this idea that we should, like, wait for people who are mo- multiply marginalized to say these things because, like, somehow they will be protected by their identities, right? And that's fundamentally not true. Multiply marginalized people will be canceled for being anti cancel culture. Like, mm-hmm. they absolutely will. And they just have even less protection. And they have even less protection because they're also experiencing all of this other bullshit that they have to live with, right? Yep. So, like, actually, you know, if we do hold, like, various positions of power, like, that's all the more reason to, like, try to take some responsibility for this culture and try to oppose it, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, okay, so now we just want to talk a little bit about cancel culture and, like, what actually makes, what turns cancellations and cancel campaigns. And call-outs and call-ins. Yeah, into a culture. So, basically, what makes it a culture is the fact that it's happening all around you all the time, right? So whether or not you yourself have actually experienced a cancellation or even know someone personally who has, you've definitely witnessed um, a cancellation in some capacity. Like, you've seen it go on online. Um, And you may also have experienced some level of coercion to participate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this obviously has, like, effects. Um, Being around that all the time, knowing that it's happening, not wanting it to happen to you... um, leads to, like, various um, shifts in our behavior. Um, One of these is that we start to practice surveillance. So there's, like, surveillance of the self, which means, you know, I mean, a lot of people have written to us about this, and I've definitely talked about it, and I've had experiences with it myself, where, like, we, like, preemptively censor ourselves, right? We don't um, say the full extent of what we think. We don't sort of say our more controversial opinions. We don't, like, ask questions that we might be thinking you know, because we, we're trying to play it safe. Like, we don't want to say and do things that might result in cancellation. Yeah. Um, and so there's, like, a powerful self-surveillance that goes on, which really actually fundamentally diminishes um, the richness of thought on the left, right? Because people are not allowed to say what they think. We're not allowed to disagree with each other. We're not allowed to, like, have opposing viewpoints or even just ask questions. And also, like, I don't know, like, on this sort of more existential level, I guess— the act of surveilling yourself constantly like that is like a betrayal of your like freedom. Um, and it's, it's like you 
like willingly like handing over power to like another group of people and then doing their work of domination for them, you know, which just disturbs my like inner anarchist like a lot. Yeah. You know, like I'm like actually like me being allowed to think whatever I fucking want to think is like one of the, it's the only thing that you can't take away from me, you yeah. know? Um, and like, you can like lock me in prison, whatever. And I can still think whatever I think. But then like when we start getting this situation where we're literally being like surveilled by ourselves yeah. inside our own head, internalizing it, like, yeah, exactly. On behalf of others, then like, that's, I don't know. It's like a sad, scary situation. Yeah. And I've talked about this before, but like for me, there's such extreme parallels between my experience with complex PTSD and this culture, because Basically, you know, when you have developmental childhood trauma, you learn to self-surveil. Like when you are a kid who's growing up in an abusive home, you start to be, you start to study like what behaviors result in my punishment and how can I avoid punishment by changing my behaviors preemptively, right? And so a lot of people who have complex PTSD, they're very inhibited. Like they do not act in a spontaneous way because they are very afraid that their out of control behavior might result in punishment, right? And so, like, I've had years of therapy to sort of, like, try to undo that thinking. Um, And it was, like, really, I was not having a lot of progress with it. I was still very um, inhibited and, like, afraid to be spontaneous. And it is actually only when I fully rejected cancel culture and moved outside of that paradigm that I have found myself having leaps and bounds in my recovery from complex PTSD because now I'm just like way more spontaneous. Like I can laugh with my friends. I can joke around. I can say whatever's on my mind. I don't expect that like whatever I say has to be like my permanent stance on something. I'm allowed to be imperfect. I'm allowed to change my mind. You know, I, I expect that the people close to me, if they do disagree or have a critique that they will do so with like kindness, um, et cetera. Right. And so, yeah, I actually think that like self-surveillance it stunts our capacity to like grow into the fullness of who we are and our full potential as human beings. And it's actually like quite disturbing. Um, So that's one aspect. And then we're also surveilling each other, right? So we are actually encouraged and rewarded um, if we are constantly kind of like micro calling out our friends. So like if our friend says something that is like not the current up-to-date nexus sort of like language or whatever, we're supposed to like call them in, like let them know, give them a gentle reminder. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and we also sort of internalize the idea that our friends are doing that to us. So yeah, like these micro call-ins that are, or micro call-outs that are just sort of like, someone commenting on your post and being like, this post is not as inclusive as it should have been. Like you didn't mention this particular group or something. Um, cumulatively, this can have this like really intense effect, right? Yeah. Um, which is just fucking brutal for people's mental health, man. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's so wild to, to just be constantly under the expectation that like your literal friends are keeping files on you um, of like things that you've said and done wrong, which Honestly, like as an aside, we've had people tell us um, that like when they were canceled, they found out that their friends literally um, literally had been keeping files on them, um, sometimes for periods of like up to like five years or something, like screenshots of conversations that they had five years ago where they mentioned whatever, like they used like the, the wrong word. They said like female bodied instead of AFAB or something like that. Um, and... And yeah, and then these screen caps would pop up years later. And like that level of sort of like ruthless um, betrayal and surveillance and where it just turns everyone into these little like mall cops, basically, 
um, hall monitors is not the world that we want to be living in. Yeah. It's and, just not. It's really. And like, there's no assumption of privacy anymore, right? Like there is no trust that like the conversation that you're having, like with your trusted friend is not for public consumption on the internet. Right. And like one of the things that I've noticed, you know, as I've been reaching out to canceled people and like having, um, you know, developing friendships with canceled people is that a lot of times canceled people want to talk on the phone. Um, because they're so traumatized from people screen capping things that they've said, taking them out of context and using that to like destroy their lives that they just don't want there to be like recorded evidence, you know? Mm -hmm. And the idea that private correspondence between friends is like, you know, has the potential to be like broadcast to millions of people. Yeah. It's just, it's quite, it's quite disturbing. Like it, it reminds me of like, I don't know, like when you work with a therapist, like one of the, um, one of the things that can, um, basically violate the confidentiality with your therapist is if your therapist is subpoenaed to put those files into court. Um, and so like, that's quite disturbing, but it's true. So like, if you're ever involved in a trial, um, your therapist can actually be subpoenaed to release the documents to the court. Right. So like, you kind of have to keep that in the back of your mind. Um, and hopefully if you have a good therapist, they only take really vague notes. So if that ever happens, it's not going to be horrible, but yeah, like this idea that like, you know, a space where you should just be able to like think through things and like not be hypervigilant can actually be turned into like a damning document against you, um, is quite disturbing. Um, and yeah, so this leads to like dishonesty. It means that we can't be honest about what we really think about what we really believe about the questions we have, about what we're afraid of, um, and often we can't even be honest with ourselves, you know, like a lot of people when they first become exposed to this podcast or to like other critiques of this culture, they have like a really intense sort of like nervous system response because there's like this intense dissonance when trying to think these ideas, even internally in our own minds, because we know that it's so punishable to think these things, you know? And that's why like in earlier episodes, we joked that like, if you're like, you know, listening to this on and headphones, like, you know, hiding in the dark somewhere, like, we totally get it. Like, it can be yeah. really scary to think these thoughts because it's such a thought crime, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it leads to these situations where people might privately start to be developing a critique but be, like, really, really fucking afraid to, like, tell anyone about it. There's two things I want to say about all this. Like, one is um, that I think, yeah, like, most probably the huge majority of people who are participating in this surveillance and this like self-deception, this like self-dishonesty, um, don't think of it that way. Yeah. Right. And they, they tend to think, and I've been in this position, right? So like I, I can, I can talk from my own experience. They tend to think when they're surveilling their friends, they tend to think of it as being a kindness because that is how it is typically presented yeah. within the nexus. Yeah. It is, it is a kind thing to do to call someone in. Um, it is bringing someone back into the fold, you know, um, it is helping people understand it is teaching and, and what's helping wrong them with, avoid punishment. Exactly. And what's wrong with teaching? Teaching is a good thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think that it's usually being done super maliciously. I mean, often though, because people are flawed <laughs> beings, you know, um, if they are feeling malicious, it will be used maliciously. Right. But it's, it's not that it's like always this malicious project. Right. Yeah. And also that like, 
we are encouraged to think of it as like good or neutral and we are never, we don't question certain elements of it. Right. And so it's like, we're not saying that you should never give feedback to your friends. Of course. Like your trusted friends, you should definitely challenge them. But like part of what a challenge is, is that it's kind, it's compassionate, and also it respects the other person's autonomy. And that is the part I think that is most missing within the nexus because within the concept of like, I'm just like calling you in or I'm like educating you or letting you know, there's the assumption that, you know, the person doing the call in is correct. They hold the authority and the other person has no choice but to say, thank you, you're right. And it doesn't, it doesn't leave any room for disagreement, right? And like, I have friends who challenge me lovingly and like, sometimes I'm like, wow, okay, I'm going to think about that. And like, I actually think you might have a point and I'm willing to shift my position. Other times I'm like, I disagree with you, Mm -hmm. you know, and we agree to disagree and that's fine, you know? And then the other thing I wanted to say is that how, is how much all of this reminds me of ways of thinking I had when I was still in active addiction. And for me, this plays into like, I guess, yeah, like denial, um, is a big one and also like trying to control things that I couldn't actually control. This is a bit of a tangent, but I just want to get into it because it's been bubbling in my head a little bit. Like I used to um, have basically a mechanism in my brain that forcibly reoriented my thoughts whenever I started to consider Mm. like the full extent of how fucked up my addiction was basically. Um, and like, I often felt lots of sort of like fear, misery, anxiety, and so on about my addiction. Um, but like when I really started to like start thinking about like just how like bleak things had gotten for me, my brain would reorient. It was automatic. It was a process that I didn't have any control over. Um, sometimes I could like kind of watch it happening, but I had no control over it. Um, it's sort of like the, like two, like oppositely magnetized magnets or whatever. I don't really understand science. Um, like (laughs) magnets that like push away from each other. Like that's how I would always visualize it in my mind. It's like, I would start approaching this, this concept, which is like, I seriously need to make a change. And then my brain would go whoop. And just um, and veer off in another direction, you know, and I think that like the self surveillance and the like dishonesty towards yourself um, operate in a really similar way. And then like another element of this is just, yeah, like constantly trying to control other people. And this is where surveillance of others goes into it, where like I was um, in in the case of like my active addiction, the, the ways that I was trying to control other people was mostly through lying um, and trying to make sure that nobody really knew the full extent of like how much I was using and drinking, um, the like weird things that I would do to like acquire, um, alcohol and drugs or like the weird ways in which I used, um, you know, drinking in the morning or like whatever, stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like I would, sometimes I would like, yeah, whatever. I, I would, I would have like a bunch of lies going at the same time and like trying to keep track of them all was like fucking exhausting. And I think that, Um, obviously like lying to people is not the same as surveilling them exactly, but it is this element of like trying to kind of control the world around you in a way that is like ultimately kind of impossible. Right. Um, and one of the most freeing things for me when I got sober was to be able to let go of all of that Yeah, and, and just like be like, I cannot control the world around me and just like breathe a sigh of relief and be like, it's not up to me. I don't believe in God, but it's definitely not up to me. Yeah. It's up to something else out there. It's just the world doing its world thing, you yeah. know, and I don't have to control it Yeah, and I don't have to control other people. Yeah. Right. And like, so like, you know, in this case I was like, okay, I have to, I don't have to fucking lie to people anymore and keep track of all these like crazy deceptions that I was trying to keep going at the same time. These like plates I was spinning, but I also, you know, when I started exiting from the nexus, I was like, I no longer have to try to control the fucking thoughts of other people, which is impossible. Yeah. And it's really, really freeing and nice to like make that 
realization and just be like, people are going to think what they're going to think, man. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, honestly, like letting go of that shit and actually being able to make friends with people, like develop relationships with people who don't know all the Nexus language and rules, um, but who are like fucking genuinely really good people who want good things in the world, like who don't want anyone to be hurting or suffering, but who like don't come from that same lineage and don't know all of that language. It's been amazing for me. Like I've met some incredibly kind, beautiful people. And like my friend the other day literally <laughs> asked me what, when I posted something that said ACAB and, and she literally asked me, ACAB, what does that mean? Assigned Y at birth, you know? And it was like incredibly adorable and cute. <laughs> and like, I love her. Um, but she like is trying to understand what's going on in the Nexus. She genuinely doesn't understand. She knows that there's all these acronyms and there's all this like, specific language that you're supposed yeah. to use. And she just learned about AFAB. Yeah. So she's like, this must this be another like, yeah, assign something at birth. <laughs> you know? And I was like, adorable, but like not exactly correct. But yeah, like in the past, like I would have not been friends with this person because like I needed everyone that I knew to like sort of know all of the rules already. And like, I would, I would have like, I don't know, taken that as like transphobic or something when it's absurd, she's not transphobic. Um, but yeah, so it really allows you to like, I don't know, like have relationships with people as equals and to be responsible for yourself and to like trust them to be responsible for themselves and to give feedback in a loving way and to like allow for disagreement and so on. Um, but yeah, so just to continue on with like what cancel culture does and like how it's a culture, Um, another thing that it does is it, and we've sort of already talked about this, but I want to say a couple more things is that it really damages our capacity for intimacy and for building real communities and real friendships. Right. And like, for those who know my work outside of this podcast, like I'm a trauma educator and like, I do a lot of work on attachment theory. Right. And like, one of the things that's been crazy for me to realize is like, I have disorganized attachment. It's super fucking hard for me to trust people and to have like close relationships with people due to my complex trauma. And like, you know, for years I was like working on this, but I was still inside the nexus and inside cancel culture. And I was not able to make a lot of progress and I didn't understand why. And it wasn't until I was canceled and abandoned by most of my friends that I realized I couldn't trust my friends because my friends were not trustworthy. You know, I was living in a culture of disposability in which I had very good reason to believe that I was disposable because I was watching other people be disposed of all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how could I feel safe and securely attached to my friends? Because secure attachment requires this like fundamental belief that like repair is possible, that like most, most ruptures are repairable, you know, and that like, you know, relationships obviously include this, like coming closer, moving away, you know, and sometimes there's ruptures, but like that genuinely you're, you're able to repair most of the time, you know? Um, and people who have insecure attachment styles don't necessarily believe that that repair is possible because we have traumatic relationships to attachment from our childhood. But I actually think that cancel culture produces insecure attachment. It actually has the conditions under which people don't feel safe or trust their friends, right? This means we can't have true intimate relationships where we can be vulnerable and honest and our true selves. Um, And it also means that we don't have strong communities, which leads us into the final one, which is that cancel culture is anti-solidarity. Yeah, profoundly. It makes it so fucking difficult to build solidarity across groups, man. Like, especially because most, like, most people who are actually experiencing, like, any kind of sort of severe marginalization don't have access to all kinds of sort of, like, university lingo and the kinds of, like, social justice 
um, programming that Nexus people have access to. And that doesn't mean that no one in the Nexus comes from a really marginalized background. People do. But like, I think that honestly, actually one of the, I was talking to somebody recently who wanted to, um, come on the podcast and they work in shelters like me. And we were talking about how, um, working in these contexts just like obliterates like all this, like kind of Nexus ideology, because it's like, I'm just working with every single person that I work with all day long is like, uh, you know, an abuser, like a manipulator, like a violent assaulter, yeah. like a harm causer, yeah. serially, yeah. you know, has refused accountability, like whatever, you know what yeah. I mean? Every, every fucking like accusation that comes out of the nexus, like all these people are, they all have problematic ideas about race. They all have problematic ideas about gender. They all have problematic ideas about sex, yeah. you know? And they're all human beings. And they're all human beings. They all deserve help. They're all good people in one way or another. Um, and they're all people that I'm happy to serve and spend my time with, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and like, obviously like I'm talking about really people living in like a, a state of severe deprivation, you know, but, um, when we talk about like large social groups more generally, like all kinds of populations have, um, whatever, like we need to, ha- we need to build movements that, that involve all different kinds of populations. Right. And the likelihood that all the people in all the populations that we're talking about are going to be like perfect Nexans is zero. Yeah. That's a 0% and, likelihood. And nor should they be. <laughs> yeah. They don't have to be. Um, and the socialism that we are going to build is going to be a populist socialism that involves people who don't agree with everything that we think about cultural issues. It's a necessity. Yeah. We have to make socialism palatable to fucking conservatives in Alberta, to um, apolitical people living in like a reserve in fucking Labrador. You know what I mean? Like all these people need to be brought into socialism and they don't have to agree with me on fucking everything. They really don't. They have to agree with me on the necessity of um, a, a economic system that works for workers and that protects the planet. Yeah. And that fundamentally just values human life, you know, like to me, it really comes down to that. And there's a 12 step saying that is like, um, as long as the ties that bind us together are stronger than those that would tear us apart, all will be well. Yeah. And I strongly wish that the left would like, you know, look for common ground instead of looking, you know, like stop trying to make enemies with each other and start trying to look, how can we work together? Like, where can we find common ground? How can we, you know, you know, not totally agree on everything, but agree on enough that we're able to like move forward. Um, and so it's super hard to do that. And like, you know, doing political work and especially certain kinds of political work requires like a huge amount of trust in our comrades, you know? And if we live in a culture that is profoundly not trustworthy, how are we going to do, you know, political work together that requires a huge amount of trust? Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I think we can move on to the final section. Um, And basically these are just our three main reasons for why we oppose cancel culture. Um, We wanted to make it really simple and really clear. Yeah. So the first one is that we think that cancel culture is dehumanizing and cruel and it violates people's boundaries. And we're just not into that. Yeah. Like, honestly, like on a fundamental level, everything else aside, the reason that I oppose cancel culture is because it is cruel and it dehumanizes people. It creates human suffering and I oppose human suffering always. You know, I don't, I don't think that producing human suffering is ever justified for any reason, you know, for any reason. And like, that is the fundamental basis of my politics. I don't believe that we ever have to earn our right 
not to be subjected to suffering. You know, every single person should have housing. Every single person should have food. Every single person should have healthcare. Every person should have community. Every person should have support. Every person should be protected from abuse, harassment, cruelty. That is just my fundamental politics. It's literally just boils down to that, right? And so any system at all, like no matter what justification they use for it, if it produces human suffering and cruelty, like I am not down. And so that is like my main reason. And it is like a political reason is also like spiritual and emotional for me, right? Because I spend so much time talking to these people who are like fucking beautiful human beings, like they're lovely people and they are suffering so fucking much from what is happening to them, you know? And I have so much compassion for that. And that is like my main fundamental reason for opposing cancel culture. Yeah, totally. You know, I oppose it for the same reason I oppose bullying. Yeah. Right? Like, I oppose it for the same reason. Like, I don't know, once I saw, like, a bunch of teenagers throwing, like, nickels at an old lady um, who was, like, sparing for change, and I fucking, like, chased them out of the metro, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, I oppose it for the same reason I oppose prisons. I oppose it for the same reasons I I oppose, like, um, domestic abuse. And, and, like, if I see people, if I see somebody, like, screaming at his girlfriend on the street or something, like, I fucking intervene, you know? It's the same fucking reason. Yeah, and I oppose it for the same reason that I oppose racism, transphobia, homophobia, like any system that dehumanizes people and subjects them to suffering and cruelty is something that I oppose. Yeah. And the next reason is that it prevents the left from building power effectively. <laughs> like, I think that once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. But like, basically, every leftist project that is like what I would call sort of like, quote unquote, like really leftist, i.e. has at least some kind of economic analysis, um, gets fucking tanked. By yeah. cancel culture. Like, it's it's just wild, you know? Um, and even, I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know. What do you have to say about it? I mean, I think there's, like, two pieces to it. One is that, yeah, it's what you just said, that it prevents our capacity to organize. Like, you know, any sort of little organization or, like, group or, like, you know, um, you know, affiliation that happens, it gets totally tanked because of interpersonal conflict that then devolves into like some kind of cancellation like this happens chronically um so it's really fucking hard to build mass power and then when we like we were just talking about like if we're taught not to trust each other if we're taught to constantly be surveilling each other if we're taught that like people who you know aren't perfect or who have different opinions from us are the enemy like there's no way for us to like work together and to build the kind of mass power that the left needs and then the other piece of for me is that we don't have all the answers yet most of the time we actually don't have the answers. We have big problems, like for example, climate change, you know, we have some real serious fucking problems about, you know, how do we, you know, build the power that we need to like take apart capitalism? You know, we don't have answers for that. Even with like, you know, the biggest fucking minds who have been like writing and thinking about this shit for a really long time, like we don't have answers. And so what we need is more thinking. We need more people who are thinking deeply and profoundly and in a consistent way about these questions. And then we need people to be fucking talking about it with each other. And like, I don't know, like, um, for whatever reason, this is coming to mind, but like one of my favorite science fiction writers is Kim Stanley Robinson. And like in, in his books, like the Mars trilogy, like there's, there's like these like conferences that people have, right? Cause they're trying to build a, a, you know, a, they live on Mars and they're trying to build a culture on Mars and like figure out all of these like hard, like questions about like building an infrastructure on Mars and like political questions and like practical questions and like cultural questions. And like, they have these think tanks where they like all come together and they like just debate and talk and do presentations. 
And like, that's what the left needs. Like the left needs robust cultures of like debate and critical thinking and like just like the freedom to just like be like I have this wacky idea like maybe this could work like let's talk about it you know yeah and if everyone's gonna be like hmm actually like quite controversial like right off the bat and just like have this like negative mindset where you're immediately looking for what's wrong with it and trying to shut it down instead of looking for like what might be positive about it and trying to like build on that like this really prevents us from like the creative critical thought that we need to actually move towards real solutions to the very dire problems that we are facing we fucking desperately need it you know and even honestly i think even sort of like orthodox marxist leninists who um you know feel that they have they already have the solution it's leninism um need to start thinking about how like leninism actually doesn't really help us address things like climate change and also um these other issues that are really boiling to the fore, which are, in my opinion, like the sort of the potential of like mass automa- um, automation of like the entire economy, which is becoming more and more um, like less and less science fiction and more and more something that we need to actually start thinking about very soon. And also this like uh, chronic epidemic of alienation, which is like making it so that people can barely figure out like why they should stay alive. You yeah. know, um, we need to start dealing with these really badly. And one thing I just wanted to add before we move on to the next one is that cancel culture also makes it laughably easy for cops to destroy our movement. Laughably. Like it's just, it's fucking hilarious. Like all they need to do is like, like fucking put a bunch of like words in a hat and pull one out and be like, and, and you can just like create a cancellation. Yeah. Just like that. You know what I mean? Um, and tank people. And I'm literally 100% sure that they've done this a bunch of times. Yeah. And I mean, like, whatever. Maybe this is a bit risque for the pod, but I'm just going to say it. Like, we have this, like, ongoing joke about, like, the CIA, like, trying to, like, come up with reasons to destroy the left, where they're like, let's just, like, come up with this, like, really absurd thing to, like, you know, bring down this activist or whatever. Yeah. And there's, like, a department in the CIA that does this, but, like, every single time that they try to come up with something, they, like, go on Twitter and find out that, like, we already did it to ourselves. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, like, that's kind of, like, what it's like, you know? Like, it's really fucking hard to get anything off the ground because we're so intent on, like, destroying each other. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay, so then the final one, um, the final reason that we um, are opposing cancel culture is because it moves us away from real solutions for addressing conflict, for supporting survivors, and for intervening on abuse and violence. And, like, I feel this way very fucking strongly. And, like, a lot of my cancelers, you know, they say that I'm, like, anti-survivor and that I, like, you know, actively harm survivors and stuff like that. And I find it so profoundly offensive to be misrepresented in that way because I am a survivor I'm a survivor of child abuse. Complex PTSD has fully shaped the entire trajectory of my life. Um, I know violence so intimately, you know, and like in a way that not everybody does, you know, like I've had my ass kicked. I've had like really severe shit happen to me and like ending violence and abuse is like one of the most central and profound goals of my life, you know, and I care about that. I want to transform abuse and violence. I don't want it to be happening. Um, It's dehumanizing, it is cruel, it is wrong. And so... I want real strategies that actually work, you know, and I do not believe that cancel culture gives us that at all. I don't think that it is effective in ending violence. I don't think it is effective in transforming violence. And just like why I'm an abolitionist, like punishment, it doesn't get us anywhere. Like you might, you know, make the person a little bit afraid right now, but if this person has some trauma or some issues and they are acting out in like abusive ways, like punishing them is only going to add to that trauma and it's not going to help them transform it. Right. And like my experience in 12 step, um, 
programs has really shown me that there are ways to work with people that fundamentally transform them and that help them in their own agency and in their own autonomy to make choices that fucking heal them and that actually allow them to move to a space of like responsibility and repair. And like, that's the kind of shit that I want us to be focusing our energy on. I want us to be encouraging people to take responsibility and telling someone that admitting to the harm that you've caused is going to mean subjecting yourself to ongoing incessant abuse. And it's going to mean that you will never be able to escape that definition of yourself. And it's going to mean that all of the things that you're hopeful about and that you care about and that you desire in your life are going to be taken away from you. That is not an incentive to do that work. You know, but if we tell people, you know, that taking responsibility is a way to heal, it is a way to move into your own integrity and to step into the person that you really are, it is a way to live your own principles and values, it is a way to act responsibly in the world and to show kindness to others. Like, people want that. That's desirable, you know? And like, that's work that I really fucking care about. It's work that I do from all angles and that I have been doing for years, like supporting survivors, supporting abusers, also knowing that fucking abusers are very often survivors. And also now, yeah, doing a lot of work with people who have been falsely accused and who are experiencing a lot of harassment that way. And so I really care about this stuff and I want real fucking solutions And cancel culture is not one. It's not one. And like at best, it's a distraction from the real work. And at worst, it's actually just traumatizing people um, and creating more trauma and abuse that we have to now deal with, you know, and like it's just a waste of our time. And so like I'm all for having conversations about how to actually, um, you know, intervene on violence and abuse, how to encourage responsibility, how to support survivors. But cancel culture is not it. Yeah. We have, like, so much more to say about all of this, um, and we will. There's going to be more episodes about this for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, this is our, our 101 about council culture and why we oppose it. And, like, yeah, I hope that we were able to kind of stick to the principles that we set out in the beginning. It's definitely tricky because, obviously, for us, this is a very, like, emotionally loaded topic. Yeah, because we hold the stories of so many people who have been so traumatized by council culture, it is hard not to get kind of like emotionally activated by that and to feel like really, really passionate about our defense of people who are going through this level of abuse. But we still want to reiterate that like we understand and have compassion for people who are participating in cancel culture. We are not condemning you. We are not exiling you. We are not dehumanizing you. You know, we fucking get it and like also have taken part in it ourselves and like Really, we just, like, want to encourage people to think deeply about these things for themselves and to think about what their own principles are and to, like, step into their own integrity. Yeah, and if you think that you might want to, like, exit from cancel culture life, we don't require you to um, do some sort of public apology or drag yourself out in front of, like, the mob. We just um, empower you to literally just stop. Yeah. You can just stop doing it. Yeah. And if you like, you know, as you start to reflect on stuff, if you're like, wow, I own amends to someone like that's something that you make privately to that person. That is not a spectacle for everybody to consume. You know, like we are not reversing this. We're not like reversing it. And then now being like, we're going to punish and humiliate people who have punished and humiliated us. Like, absolutely not. None of us are defined by the worst shit that we've ever done. Everybody makes mistakes and does shit that they regret. And like, yeah. You're a fucking human being and you're like welcome. And so we really want to make that clear. And like, you know, some of my best friends are like, they were mega cancelers, you know, like, and myself too. I used to be quite, you know, I wasn't maybe the top canceler, 
But I've had my canceling days, you know, I've taken part. Yep. Well, that's about it for today. So thanks a lot for listening. Um, we wanted to quickly mention, uh, just to remind people, we have a Patreon that you can support us at um, so we can keep making these podcasts. Um, it's patreon.com slash fucking canceled. Um, two L's and canceled because we're Canadian. Um, we're also going to start doing live streams on our Patreon, we think. We figured out a way to do it um, that seems to be pretty effective. And so uh, that's a... Uh, one we're gonna we're gonna start having extra content on there. Um, yeah. We also throw up like little essays and photos and stuff like that on Patreon. Um, I have an Instagram now for my sins. Jay is finally online. Yeah. It's, so the uh, mysterious Jay is finally available. Yeah. It was on a, the internet. It was a questionable move, but um, <laughs> I'm on there. My Instagram is um, Domino Fagi. So it's D O M I N O P H A G A G Y. And we'll put the uh, the link in the show notes. Yeah. And uh, if you want to send us hate mail, you can send us hate mail at fucking canceled at gmail.com. There's no you in fucking because Gmail wouldn't let us. And there's two L's in canceled because we're Canadian. Thank you so much for being with us on this journey. And like, we know that these are like intense topics and very emotionally loaded for everyone involved. And like, we're really, really grateful that we're out here talking about these things and having these hard conversations. Love you and see you next time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Be well. <laughs>